Welcome back to Genesis. Uh, super excited to have uh, you guys here in the space. And if you're joining us online this morning, uh, YouTube, Facebook, our website, super thankful that you're taking an hour of your time to be with us as well. Uh, seriously, it feels great just to see some faces here in the space. It's been nearly five months since we've had people physically here in the building for a worship gathering like this. So thanks for taking time to join us. If you are literally brand new to Genesis, uh, you haven't ever been here before, thanks for visiting, and uh, I hope that you've already been encouraged. And for everyone else, you haven't been here in almost five months, so seriously, welcome back to, uh, uh, to Genesis here. Um, for me, I am now officially part of the Hamilton Fan Club. How many people saw Hamilton over the past couple weeks via Disney Plus? Okay, none of you. Great. Well, you should get Disney Plus because it's actually a pretty amazing show to watch. I saved myself thousands of dollars in not having to go see it on Broadway and got to watch Hamilton from the comfort of my own living room. Now, before watching Hamilton, uh, Alexander Hamilton, I had no clue really who he was. I knew that his face is on our $10 bill, but I only knew that because my wife told me that his face is on the $10 bill. The show itself was highly entertaining, incredible musical, uh, very, very engaging, powerful story. But as I was watching uh, this two and a half, three hour long show, uh, I found myself feeling bad for Alexander Hamilton as I was watching. Because his whole life was about proving to other people and proving to himself uh, his value and his worth and his significance. In one of the opening songs, he's having a conversation for the very first time. He's meeting uh, Aaron Burr, and Aaron Burr, if you don't know, is the guy who eventually would shoot Alexander Hamilton. But when he first meets Aaron Burr, this is what he says. You're an orphan. This is Alexander Hamilton talking. You're an orphan. Of course, I'm an orphan as well. God, I wish there was a war. Then we could prove that we're worth more than anyone bargained for. Now, he would have been okay with a war, meaning people dying because he was so desperate to prove his value and his worth and his significance to other people, and he was searching for that. Now, I don't know about you, but that to me seems a little bit messed up, so hungry for significance and value and an identity that you'd even be willing to be, start a war to make that happen. And then in another scene in Hamilton, where Hamilton is having a conversation with George Washington, the first president, this is what Hamilton says to Washington. I don't have your name, I don't have your titles, I don't have your land, but if you gave me command of a battalion, a group of men to lead, I could fly above my station after the war. And his whole point in saying that is if I could just command a group of people, then I would have an identity that would give me some semblance of value and worth and significance. Now, as I was watching this three-hour show, to be honest, uh, I had this overwhelming sense of I can actually relate with Hamilton, meaning I've spent so much of my life, and maybe I shouldn't say I spent it, maybe I wasted so much of my life trying to craft an image and an identity that I thought might impress other people and would leave me feeling with a sense of value and worth and significance and dignity. And I just wonder for how many of us 
how many of us can actually relate with Alexander Hamilton as well? Just wanting to prove our worth by what we do or by what we accomplish in life. Hungry for an identity and an image that maybe would impress others, but would at least leave us feeling somewhat filled and significant. Now, what on earth does any of this have to do with Hey Jesus and the series we're in of the questions that people actually ask Jesus? Well, the question that we're looking at this morning actually has nothing to do with what I've just shared. But how Jesus answered their question has everything to do with what I just shared. Here is what the questioners had to say to Jesus before they hit him up with their question. This is in Mark chapter 12, and this is what the questioners say to Jesus in verse 14. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You are impartial. You don't play favorites. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now, if the only thing that you heard them say to Jesus was that, Jesus, we know how honest you are. You don't play favorites with people. You teach, you know, absolute truth. If they actually believed all of those things, what question would you envision is going to come out of their mouths next? What question would they ask Jesus? Because if they believed those things, wouldn't they ask questions like, well, please tell us what God is really like? What does God think of me? What is God's plans or purposes for me? What is God's plans and purposes for our people? Bigfoot, UFOs, are those things actually real? If they believed all that hype that they gave to Jesus, wouldn't they ask a sincere question? If they believed the flattery they were pouring out on Jesus, then wouldn't their question actually reflect that? And we find that, as we've said week after week, questions reveal what's in their heart, and what's in their heart is revealed in the question that they actually asked Jesus, starting in verse 14 and 15. Now tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? Like taxes? That's your burning question that you have for Jesus. You want to know something about taxes. You're standing before the one who has walked on water, who is telling people that he is God in flesh, that he has calmed storms, that he has healed people, that he has fed thousands and thousands of people with very little resources. Taxes? That's what you really want to know about is taxes. Again, as you've heard me say, questions reveal heart, and what was on the hearts of these religious leaders was ultimately trapping Jesus in order to either get him in trouble with the Romans or to get him to lose favor with the Jewish people. If Jesus responds by saying, hey, pay your taxes, well, then the people are immediately going to think, well, clearly you don't care about us because you want us to give our hard-earned money to a corrupt government that is completely oppressing us. And if Jesus says, well, don't pay your taxes to please the people, well, then Rome is going to have serious issue with Jesus for saying that, and they're going to take Jesus and put him into prison for sedition. So this is a win-win scenario for the religious leaders asking the question, and this is a lose-lose for Jesus. So what is Jesus going to do? Well, before we look at how Jesus actually answered the question on taxes, Jesus actually asked them another question first, and it's in verse 15. Jesus saw through their hypocrisy, and he said, why are you trying to trap me? 
Jesus saw through their hypocrisy, and his first question in response to taxes was, why are you trying to trap me? Hypocrite, in the language of Jesus' day, was used to refer to someone who was an actor or someone who was a stage player. See, actors would wear different masks on their face to portray who they were actually imitating. So when it says Jesus saw through their hypocrisy, Mark, the author here, is saying Jesus could see through the masks that they were wearing. He could see their agenda. He could see their motives. He could see, ultimately, what was in their hearts. But what was so clear to Jesus, what He could see, they could not see, because hypocrisy has a blinding effect on us. Our hypocrisy has a blinding effect. So when Jesus asked them, why are you trying to trap me? Jesus is seeking to help them see what they can't see. He's trying to help them see the hypocrisy behind their question. Now, I don't know about you, but one of the most frustrating things to me is when maybe you have breakfast or lunch or a meal with someone, and you spend like an hour with that person, and then you get into your car, and you look into the rearview mirror, and you see there's like food either in the corner of your mouth or there's food in your teeth. And you're like, my goodness, I just spent an entire hour with this person. How is it possible that they could not tell me I had half of my lunch in my teeth and I did not know that? Well, like these religious leaders, we have things in our life that we are absolutely blind to. And thankfully, Jesus wanted to help them, but ultimately help us see what we can't see so that we do not miss God's heart for each of us. So here's how Jesus responds to their trap question on taxes, and in His response, we catch a glimpse of what God's heart was for them, but also for us. This is in Mark 12, starting at verse 15. Jesus saw through their hypocrisy, and He said, why are you trying to trap me? Show me a Roman coin, and I will tell you. When they handed, him, uh, handed it to Him, He asked, whose picture and title are stamped on it. Caesar's, they replied. Well then, Jesus said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. And his reply completely amazed them. So not only in this moment do we get a picture of the brilliance of Jesus with his answer, but we get another picture of just how gracious how kind Jesus is to even answer their question. If you knew that the person who was asking you a question was only asking you the question in order to hurt you, in order to trap you, in order to take you down, in order to use your response as ultimately a weapon against you, would you even give that person the time of day? If you knew that they were trying to hurt you with their question, wouldn't you just walk away and say, I'm not going to bother with you. I'm not even going to pay attention to your question because you're ultimately trying to hurt me. Well, in this moment, I'm very thankful that Jesus is not like us. Jesus actually very graciously responds to their question with yet one more question. Whose image is on the coin? He says, hey, show me a coin. Whose image is on the coin? And much like our currency, that most of our currency has a former president on it, on their currency, was an image of Caesar. And so Jesus says, gives what seems to me to be a pretty clear and maybe obvious answer. If you carry that which bears his image, well then pay his taxes. 
Not much to argue with there. Jesus can't be accused of being pro-Rome in this moment. He's just helping them to see, listen, if you are going to use His currency to buy and sell and uh, trade, well, then give to the one whose image is on the very currency you're using, pay your taxes. Now, in some ways, the conversation could have just ended right there because Jesus answered their question without getting Himself trapped. But what I love about Jesus, He doesn't stop there. He gives His questioners actually what they didn't ask for, but what they needed more than anything else. And here's what Jesus says, give to God what belongs to God. That was His response, give to God what belongs to God. Now, I can't know this for sure, but I'm pretty confident that when the religious leaders heard Jesus say that, they'd be like, sweet, we're already doing that. We give uh, a tithe back to God, so we're good. We're giving to God what belongs to God. We're giving our money to God. But what Jesus is talking about here transcends money. What Jesus is talking about is so much bigger than just finances. Maybe the obvious question then becomes, well, what actually then belongs to God? What actually belongs to God? In the same way that Jesus asked the question, whose image is stamped on the coin, we must wrestle with, okay, well, whose image is then stamped on us? Whose image is stamped on our life? How would you answer that question for you? Whose image is stamped on your life? I think if we're being honest, like I mentioned at the beginning, image is everything to us. Our identity is an all-consuming thing for so many people. We often work tirelessly to project an image and to project, project an identity that other people would be impressed by and that we somehow would be fulfilled by. We so desperately want people to think a certain way of us. They're so fashionable. They're so smart. They're so witty. They're so fit. They're so healthy. They're so beautiful. They're so hip. They're so successful. They are so well off. They're so spiritual. They're so happy. They have the perfect marriage. They have the perfect boyfriend or girlfriend or fiance. They're perfect parents. Everything in their life just appears to be all together. This is a pretty short list of the images of the image that we want to project to other people. And the image that we're trying so desperately to project is often a far cry from the image that we've actually already been given. If you're human, which all of us in here are, you have the image of God stamped on your life. You have the image of God stamped on your life, no matter who you are, no matter where you've come from, no matter what you've done, no matter your faith background, no matter your gender, no matter your race, the image of God has been stamped on your life. In the same way the image of Caesar was stamped on the coin, the image of God has been stamped on all of us. Every single one of us has the image of God stamped on us. One of the very first things that we learn about ourselves after we learn that we have a Creator, we learn how the Creator created us. This is in Genesis chapter 1, on the very opening pages of the story. Genesis chapter 1, starting verse 26, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. 
Verse 27, so God created human beings in His own image. In the image of God, He created them, male and female, He created them. So, when God created humanity, He stamped who He is, His image on us, both male and female alike. Our identity, our image, what gives us value and worth and significance comes from the image that we bear, the image that we have been given. It does not stem from our gender or our race or our cultural upbringing or the things that we might do or accomplish in life. And unlike Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton assumed, significance, value, and worth does not come from what you achieve, does not come from what other people say you mean to them. Our identity solely comes from the image of God that we bear, the image of God that we have been given. It's His image alone that gives us the value and the significance and the dignity and the worth that we want. Now, when I hear that, when I say that, the good news of that reality is that you and I are forever freed from trying to craft or cultivate an identity or an image on our own. You don't have to mess with that anymore. You don't have to worry about what your image is going to be and what your identity is going to be because you've been created by God and you have been given the image of God in your life. You bear His image. Now, that to me is freeing. It's incredible good news, but that good news also comes with an incredible responsibility. Remember what Jesus said in verse 17, give to God what belongs to God. In the same way that the image was stamped on the coin, the image has been stamped on you, on your life, so give to God what belongs to God. So, the obvious question that they would wrestle with, the question that we have to wrestle with is, all right, well, what actually belongs to God? In your life, what actually belongs to God? And I'm not trying to oversimplify this, but you do. You do. Not some of you, not part of you, not certain things or not even a lot of things, but what belongs to God is you do, I do. All of who we are belong to God. Now, I know that statement flies in the face of everything that we value as a people. I'm my own person. I can do my own thing. I'm independent. I belong to no one. I'm not going to li- I'm going to do what I want when I want, how I want. I am an autonomous person. I can do whatever I want. I'm not going to have someone else tell me what I should do. It is my life. And when we say those things that sounds great because we value our independence and our autonomy, but if we're honest, We'd have to just slow down a little bit and admit this idea of I'm my own person is not really working very well in our world. When you just look around and you see that our world is just marked by so much greed and so much lust and so much anger and so much hatred and so much division and so much racism and so much brokenness, we have to admit that this concept of our autonomy, our independence, we do whatever we want, whenever we want, is not really working. It's causing a lot of pain and a lot of hurt and a lot of devastation and destruction. So maybe it's time we just ask a better question, which would simply be, is there a better way for us? See, when Jesus answers the question on taxes, He's actually giving a better way for each of us to live. What does it mean to give to God what belongs to God. Well, for starters, it means your dreams, 
your hopes, your present, your future, your past, your time, your talents, your abilities, your money, your resources, your passions, your desires, your relationships, your marriage, your children, your career, your degree, your pains and your worries and your hurts, your fears. Guess what? All of those things that make up who we are as people, they absolutely belong to God. We give them to God. Our simple prayer is, God, all of these things, they all belong to you because I belong to you. Everything in my life. That was a short list. But God, it all belongs to you. Why? Because I belong to you. It's not just part of my life belongs to you. All of my life belongs to you. I love how D.L. Moody said it. He was a pastor, preacher, theologian. He said, let God have your life. He can do more with it than you can. So simple, but yet so profound. Just let God have your life. He can do so much more with in and through your life than you ever could. I absolutely love the quote, but why do we have such a hard time believing that to be true? What is it about us that we have such a difficult time believing the truth that if we just would give all of who we are over to God, that He would do more with our life than we ever could? Why do we assume that in giving our life to God, that God is ultimately just going to be committed to making our lives as difficult and painful and miserable as possible? Why do we assume that if we could just achieve that career, achieve the money and the stuff that goes with it and the positions and the titles and the relationships and the, and the degree and the applause, why do we assume that if we could just have those things, if we could just achieve some of those things, well, then we would have an identity and we would have an image that is better than actually having the image of God stamped on our lives. I guess what I'm asking is this, why is it so easy to believe lies about God and who He is and what He's like, but it's so easy to embrace as truth that if you can just have this or that in your life, then you'll finally have the image that you're craving, the identity that you're so hungry that you think would fulfill you. Well, I think my simple but honest answer to why we believe lies about God and why we embrace as truth these things is we don't want to belong to God. We don't want to belong to God. We want to be our own person. When man decided to walk away from God and sin entered into the world, sin entered into the human heart, well, that image of God, it was not lost, but it was broken. It was marred in us. Much like if you can see yourself in a reflection of a mirror, even if that mirror is shattered and broken, you can still see glimpses of you, but you don't look the same. You look different because the mirror is broken and in pieces. So, in a similar way, sin in the world, sin in our lives, it doesn't remove the image of God from you or me, but it has distorted the image of God in our lives. This to me is the beauty and the power of the gospel of Jesus, that He not only came to bring us back to God, to experience right relationship with God, Jesus came also to restore the image of God in our lives so that as we are living, we are a living reflection of what God is like. We're a living reflection of His love, His kindness, His care, His concern, His compassion, His faithfulness, His generosity, His graciousness. Jesus came to 
bring us back to God? Because we declared we don't want to belong to God. We want to do our own thing. But Jesus said, I'm coming to make a way to bring you back to God and to restore what was marred and broken because of sin. I love how it says in Colossians chapter 3, put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. It's this idea, if you have placed your faith in Jesus and Jesus alone, He has given you a new self, a new life, a new creation. He's brought you back to God. But I love how Colossians says, and guess what that new self, what's happening? The image of God is being redeemed and restored in you so that you and I are reflecting to those in our lives that don't know who God is, we're giving Him a glimpse of what God is actually like. We're going to take five minutes right now, as best as we can, just to be kind of still and quiet where we are, and I have two questions that I wanted you to just reflect on in this moment. And the two questions are this, where are you deriving your identity from right now? Be honest with yourself. Where are you deriving your identity from right now? Is it really coming from the work, the career, the money, the stuff, the relationships, the marriage, the parenting, the accomplishments and the achievements? Like, where are you deriving your image from right now? And the second question I invite you just to reflect on, is there something in your life that still belongs to you? Is there something in your life that still belongs to you? Because if in Christ we belong to God, then is there something that you're still holding on to as this is mine? I'm not letting Him touch this area of my life. I'm not going to let Him touch my finances. I'm not letting Him going to touch this relationship. I'm not going to let Him touch this pursuit I have to climb the ladder, whatever that ladder might be. Is there something in your life that still belongs to you? And as you reflect just on these two questions, what I would invite you to do is if there is something that you're saying, hey, I'm actually looking for an identity in these other things and not the identity that you have been given in the image of God, then just take a moment and repent from that and say, God, I have been looking to this, this person, this situation, this work for an identity and an image. I reject that and I repent from that. And if there's something that you would be honest to say, yes, this still belongs to me, I've not given it to God, then in the moment of reflection, say, God, open hands, everything I have, all of who I am, it belongs to you, and I want to put it at your feet. So, Father God, thank you for a moment just to be still, to be quiet, and to reflect. God, in these just brief moments, five minutes, God, I pray that you would be very generous just to speak to each of us in the exact way that we need to hear from you as it relates to our identity and maybe some things in our life that still belongs to us. So God, would you move in a powerful way in these moments of reflection that we might be people that would respond to you. We pray that, Jesus, in your name.